listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thank you for joining us for episode 224, and it is November 1st Friday Q&A. I think it's 324, huh? Oh, 324. See? 100 episodes immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. Now we go home. (laughs) (laughs) I was probably distracted because I'm over here playing with my magnetic sand. But anyway, it's first Friday Q&A, so we're here to answer the questions asked by you. Mark, you want to talk about Christmas merch? Before we get to Christmas merch, leave us a review, folks. Easy, go in the link to the show notes. Lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW if you want to try to memorize it. It's easier to go in the link. Our reviews have been slim, although we do have one today. What has not been slim, though, is our Christmas merch. We got a bunch of really cool stuff that our marketing team put together. Go to OGG.com, hit merch, and you can check it out. Now, that Christmas merch is going to go away pretty soon, so if you want some, grab it while you can. And interesting enough, I had somebody hit me up on LinkedIn, actually it was public comment, that said, hey, I would love to get some of this stuff for my wife, but it's all crew neck designs, and my wife would prefer a scoop neck or a V-neck. Hey, I'm right there with her. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so we need to get some other necklines in there yeah. besides crew necks. Yeah, not everybody enjoys a crew yeah. neck. I think it's more of a guy thing. Good feedback. So go check out our Christmas merch. Some It's really, really funny. Another thing is we have a major announcement on this show that's going to come out the very end of this year. Nothing's changing that impacts you, our listeners. The show format's going to stay the same. Paige and I are staying here. It's just something that is... Only uh, if you behave. <laughs> it's just something that's a little bit of an evolution. We are looking to make that announcement at a live event somewhere, which would be a perfect team building exercise for your company. So if you'd like to have a little bit of history happen live, get all your people together, buy them lunch or dinner, or like Paige says, have a crawfish boil. We'll do the podcast live, make the announcement there. Let me know. I'd love to share the details with you. Then we forgot to talk about this last show. The last two weeks of December, we're taking off on purpose. I know that we've missed some weeks. It's part of you putting up with us in this show. (laughs) Unfortunately, recently we had to miss a little bit of time because of some illegal stuff and some stalkerish stuff. But telling you up front, the last two weeks of December, like we usually do, we're taking off and we're fine. We're intentionally taking this off so we can get a little bit of a break. Yeah. Okay, so we have a five-star review. Great source of news, updates, and analytics. Well done and enjoy listening every week. Great weekly summary, updates on industry, key trends, analysis, and all with a sense of humor. Thanks for sharing. Please keep it up. Sir, hi. I think that's right. Yep. Okay. So thank you for the review. If you'd like to be like Sir Hyde, like I said, go just do the links in the show notes. Leave us a review. Love the five stars. Laugh at the one stars. <laughs> yeah, those are usually pretty hilarious because they're like, oh, I'm going to hurt your feelings. But anyway, like I said, it's First Friday Q&A. And as always, we're starting off with Ludwig. And he basically says, I told you, it's Ukraine. It makes no sense for Russia. Having it and play with it more interesting. What many people forget is that nowadays, the only pipeline for Europa, Austria, and Hungary are through Belarus and Ukraine. So Ukraine committed economic warfare against West Europe. If Zelensky is not knowing it, then he is more delusional. It is interesting that no one talks about sanctioning Ukraine, but do on Russia. Okay, Ludwig. It is very easy for you to play armchair quarterback after I made the prediction when nobody else would make the prediction who blew up that Nord Stream 2 pipeline and say, I told you so. Although, Ludwig, you're 100% right. I was wrong. It was Ukraine. 
the other thing is there actually are some sanctions in Ukraine. I believe Australia, so not Austria, but I believe Australia has some food sanctions. There are only certain food items Ukraine grows, which I think is a certain type of wheat and certain fruits. Yeah, I think you're right. They're not letting them import into Australia because of the war. So it's not 100% sanctions on Russia, but the majority is definitely on Russia. I just knew it was sketch. I just yeah. knew it was sketchy. All right, next one comes from... Dirk Craigie, GIS analyst. Mark Page, just got my weekly fix with episode 320. Missed you both for two weeks. Thoughts are with you both all the way from Australia. Keep up the fantastic work. Thank you, Dirk. I feel, you know, we, we have this huge global audience, and yet you care, and that touches our heart. Thank you. Yeah. Next one is from Bill Formosa, SVP at Floor. This is the absolute best podcast I've ever listened to. Been a fan for a very long time. Now, if you two could just kick out regular weekly releases, everybody would be happy. Hey, may even lead to world peace. If we have a political leadership change in this next election, what do you think the odds are that we will have some new refineries built in the USA? Good question, especially from Floor, EBC Company, which is, I'm sure, building these refineries, y'all's part of y'all's bread and butter. So, Bill, I think if we have a political change in our next election. I think the companies that want to build these facilities in the U.S. are still going to take a little bit of a wait-and-see attitude. We need to make sure that politically it's stable. And I don't mean it's politically conservative or libertarian or liberal. I mean, it's politically stable. And you can have unstable political regimes regardless of what side of the house it's on. I think there's still going to take a wait-and-see attitude. You may see some teapots refinery built, some very small refineries, very specialized petrochemical refineries built almost immediately, or at least the trigger will be pulled on them if we have a political change. But the large, complex, multi-billion dollar, 10-year build-out, I think they're going to wait and see. And it may be, unfortunately, that they don't ever want to bring those back here. I hope I'm wrong about that. It just could depend on what happens politically in this country for the next decade. Yeah. So we'll see. Oh, what's the link under that? Energy investor? That's to answer the question you haven't oh, okay. read yet. So oh. you need to mark all that out. No, I don't. Okay. So the next one's from Ryan Goldsmith. I guess I went down too far. I am a new passive investor in oil and gas. I've wanted to learn more about the industry. When am I investing in? Is there a podcast for beginners? Perhaps a podcast that helps beginning investors understand the industry they're investing in. Thank you. Well, Ryan, <laughs> I jumped ahead of myself. Let Sorry. me answer this for you. Go check out Energy Investor with host Andy Hoggins. Andy Hoggins, Energy Investor. I'm not saying that because I was a guest on that show, although I was. Andy does a fantastic job guiding you through investing oil and gas from a beginner's point of view. He's also, I believe, has a little side business helping you with that as well. So go listen to the podcast. The link will be in the show notes. And if you want to, reach out to Andy directly. Use my name and see if he can help you as well. Cool. All right. Jennifer Thule, Regulatory Coordinator at Cat Canyon Resources. Hello, my favorite oil and gas team. I really appreciate all the work you put into this podcast. Keeps me up to date and entertained without spending hours and hours of time reading through trade rags or blog posts. Paige, why is the federal government raising the bond amount that oil and gas companies have to pay to drill on public land? And love your Sunday update. So they normally do that every year. Fees and everything go up, bonds go up, but the bonds are increasing to protect the taxpayer in the long run. Sometimes companies just go bankrupt, they shut down, they can't take care of the remediation of, of all that. And in the long run, the taxpayers and the American taxpayers pay for that. So that's the reason why that's happening. Cool. Yeah. Hey, I wonder if we could get like the federal government put coupons to their bonds in our Sunday update. 
I don't your think that's discount. how that works, Mark. <laughs> they should. If you're listening, federal government, have, it might be a way to increase your. You've never had to deal with bonds, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah. This comes from Anonymous. What is your opinion on Chevron's acquisition of Hess? I think they are interested in the back end asset or will sell the asset after the deal goes through. Yes and no. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Two big reasons Chevron decided to pick up Hess. It all has to do with competing with Exxon's acquisition. So number one is they want a bigger U.S. oil footprint. So that's why they're going to keep the Bakken. and they're not going to sell that off. They also want a stake in the Guiana discoveries. Exxon Mobil has been killing in that part of the world. So in order to stay competitive, Chevron has no choice. It naturally has some operating facilities there. That's why Chevron's picking up Hess. It just makes total sense from a competitive point of view, especially them looking at Exxon. Now, what's interesting at this is Chevron's not worried about Shell and BP at all. They're worried about Exxon, which tells you a whole load of what the future's going to bring between these two guys. If BP and Shell doesn't get their act together, they're going to be left in the dust. They're going to be the smaller super majors. And like I said, these could be the two new mega majors. Okay. Kathy Dickerson is the CFO at Northside Tools. Mark and Paige, huge fan of the show, as is most of the company. Two questions. Mark, how can our marketing team best collaborate with our sales team to optimize brand awareness and increase sales? First thing, I'm glad you're thinking about the right way. Bet sales reports directly to you, Kathy, since you're asking me this question. Usually CFOs don't ask me this question. Regardless of what rules and regulations and process you put in place, let me tell you how to make this work. Two things, one of which is easy, one of which is hard. The first one is make it a point that your marketing people rotate around and go to sales meetings with your sales team. I know your marketing people have stuff to do, and when they're out in the road, the sales team, they're not being as productive as they are back in the office. When I say your marketing team, I mean everybody, the graphic artists, the web designers, the people that are writing content, the videographers, everybody. By hanging out with your salespeople in sales meeting, they're going to hear from the customers directly, the people that generate revenue for your Northside tool business on what's going on. And that's going to help them become a much better marketer. It's also going to help them drive the right leads to your sales team. Right now, I guarantee you, your marketing has no contact with your buying customers and especially not through the sales process. So it's almost like they're shooting in the dark. They don't know. By having them hang out with your sales team, they will have that information, which is super valuable. That's the easy one. The hard one is I think you should have your marketing team's compensation tied to sales in some way. You'll get a lot of pushback. You'll get a lot of screaming from the marketing team that that's not fair. However, in my opinion, marketing is there to generate leads and create brand awareness, both of which makes it easier for the sales team to sell. I think part of, by the way, I don't think you should have a pure commission marketing team. That would make no sense. Your sales team should be on something like a base salary plus some type of bonus or commission, I think you should take that same commission structure, cut it down by 75% and make it a commission for your marketing team. So when sales does good, let's say your sales team kills it and one of your salespeople generates $100,000 in commission for the team, I think you should earmark $25,000 of that for your marketing team that support those sales efforts. Like I said, you get a lot of pushback on that. The marketing team's not going to like it. But if you tie compensation to sales results with your marketing team, it will drive the right behavior. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to be hard, but it works. And like I said, if you don't want to do it, just having your marketing team, having a process in place where your marketing team goes to sales meet with your sales team will help a whole bunch. Okay. And the second question, Paige, what advice 
would you give to help us attract more women to our application process? We hire a lot of women that apply, but unfortunately only about 10% of our applicants are female and we haven't figured out how to solve this problem. Well, I think you should actually ask the employees you've hired what attracted them to your company. Also, what type of benefits are you giving? Like, do people have maternity leave, stuff like that? Those types of things, I think, stick out. Other than that, that's all I got. Mark, you have anything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell the audience a little story. When I got my first job in the oil and gas industry, it was with the phone company that you heard me say this a million times, Bell South. So I'm very young. It's my first real corporate sales job. I'm nervous. It's a lot of money. There's a lot of people competing for this job. I interviewed with six different people. When they made me the offer, you know what I did? Hmm. I asked for more money. Which is kind of scary to do. It is. My female peer, who I'm still good friends with, who was hired almost at the same time I was, with almost the same background, and she was hired for the same role, guess what? She took what they offered her. Hmm. There is a difference in the way men and women approach things. And I'm not being sexist here. I've just seen it over and over and over again. Now, if you think about what I said about me asking for more money, five years later, if both of our salaries grew 10% every year, I was way ahead of her because I asked more money up front. I started with a bigger number. Right. That makes sense. In the job application world, let me tell you how guys think. If I'm applying for a job and I meet most of the qualifications, I'm applying for the job. That's how guys think. I can learn the rest. Women, if they read the job qualifications and they're not qualified, won't apply. The reason that it's important is who asked this question? Kathy. Kathy. The reason it's important, Kathy, look how your job applications are written. I would not be surprised if they were written years ago by somebody in HR. I would not be surprised if it's all about naming the right qualifications that you think is the perfect fit for the job instead of understanding that when men read those qualifications, they're going to breeze through it. And if they see that they meet half of it, they're going to apply. And women are not going to apply unless they meet all I job I mean, that's fair. I'm being very serious. So I've seen that a lot. You can also, the Harvard Business Review did a huge article on this exact same thing. And there's a lot of good data in there. Here's a perfect read. 22% of women indicate their top reason they didn't apply for a job is they thought nobody would hire them since I did not meet all of the qualifications. And I did not want to put myself in that position where I was likely to fail. That's 22% of women. 3% of men said that they didn't want to apply because they didn't meet all the qualifications. That's a big difference. That's a 22 huge percent of women, difference. 3% of men. Yeah. So I would look at how your job applications are written. And if they haven't been updated in a few years, like most people, in fact, most people in the oil and gas industry, their job applications haven't been updated in 10 years, maybe 15 or 20. Right. Think about rewriting them to make it more open. And remember, I shouldn't say remember, but in my opinion, I don't hire qualifications. I hire for desire and ability to learn the job. Mm -hmm. It's hard to hire the exact person you want. It's easier to find somebody that wants to do a good job and is willing to work their butt off. Yep. All right. So Carl B. writes in, love the show. Been listening for the last six months. Very informative and <laughs> encompassing. Thank you. You answered a question from Luvik about Chevron moving its headquarters to Houston. From all public accounts, that's not the case. They're leasing space near the old campus in San Ramon and have said they aren't moving headquarters to Houston. Who knows if, when that changes, but for now, that's what's being said. 
All right, Carl. So my understanding is this past June, Chevron said it was selling its headquarters building in San Ramon, and they're looking for a smaller base to house the executives that are staying there. I will tell you this much, though. I went back and looked, and I could not find any place where Chevron said they were moving their headquarters to Houston. So it looks like you're right as of now. However, since they're selling their corporate headquarters, which I've been to a million times, and it's beautiful, and they're looking for a smaller facility. And I know from the people that I know at Chevron that for the last 10 years, they've been moving everybody here to Houston, I would not think it's that far away before they make the public announcement their headquarters moving to Houston. Okie dokie. All right. Jacqueline Turner, Supply Chain Specialist 2 from Distribution Now. I agree with the last person that wrote in and called you to oil and gas royalty. You both do such a fantastic job of keeping me up to date and at the same time explaining complex issues in a very simple manner. I even have my dad listening to your show, even though he's not in the industry. Drives my mom crazy (laughs) that we discuss your show and that (laughs) when we get together (laughs) and the rest of the family has no clue what we're talking about, LOL. Uh, (laughs) My question is, what do you think electric vehicles impact long term will be to the oil and gas industry? And Paige, where is your review show? Love you guys. I'll let you answer your review show. It's coming soon. It will be out before the end of the year. Some of the things we're reviewing, we need a place to do so. So that's kind of been like... I'm laughing because some of the stuff they're reviewing requires a bomb disposal unit <laughs> and flag jackets. You think I'm making it up? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. So, yeah. Anyway. All right. What do you think electric vehicles impact long-term beat the oil and gas industry? Honestly, I think the electric vehicles impact oil and gas industry is it's going to make internal combustion in your manufacturers have to do just a little bit better. But she doesn't say where she's from. Distribution now is the NOV part, supply chain part they spun off a few years ago. I'm guessing she's here in the U.S., probably here in Houston. So here's what's going on with electric vehicles. Love electric vehicles. They have their place. Super efficient. Very fast in a straight line. And I'm a car guy. I love all that. However, they're for rich people, no matter what anybody says. You have to be wealthy to not only buy the vehicle itself, and some of that is being artificially propped up by different subsidies and tax breaks and everything. Bottom line, they're expensive. But the other thing is, in order to be practical, you have to have a garage that you own so you can install a charger, which means you need to own the house, which is another wealth thing. Right now, November of 2020, and boy, I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I'm sorry. Did you just say 2020? I'm sorry. <laughs> November 2023. Thank you. Ooh. Um, Dealers of electric vehicles can't get rid of them. They're sitting in the lots. They're not selling. Ford has greatly diminished its manufacturing. Chevrolet's doing the same thing. Tesla's doing price cuts. This is the beginning of the market correcting itself. You had the early adopters, which were wealthy people. All the early adopters have now bought. Now you have to have the common person like me and you buy an electric vehicle. And quite frankly, none of us want to do for several reasons. The cost is number one. Number two, we worry about being able to recharge it. So range anxiety. Number three, we're worried that if electric vehicle adaptation doesn't happen, what happens if I buy an electric vehicle and these electric charging stations that I'm being promised that haven't been built yet don't ever get built? Yeah. I am stuck with a major investment, $100,000 at least, in a vehicle that I can't recharge. That gives me anxiety. Yeah. See, so it's a perfect example. And once again, electric vehicles have their place. They're super efficient. Electric motor develops 100% its torque at one RPM. You don't need a transmission. You can generate all that electricity from stationary generators that don't have to dump that heat in the air like internal combustion engine. 
I talked about this earlier. If you look at the lack of demand for gasoline for passenger vehicles in the U.S., it's 0.5% less because electric vehicles that are currently on the road, that doesn't even count. You don't even see that as a blip in the graph. I'm not worried about electric vehicles at all impact to the oil and gas industry. What it is doing is causing the companies that make internal combustion engine vehicles have to do just a little bit better, not a lot better. So if I can build an internal combustion vehicle that normally would get 25 miles a gallon and it gets 30, man, all of a sudden the dynamics as far as cost are totally different to an electric vehicle. I don't see any impact. I'll give you a prime example to get a little bit better. You know, all my Chrysler fans out there, all my muscle car fans are out there. You look at the Dodge Charger, the Scat Pack, the Dodge Hellcat, they're running anywhere from 600 to close to 1,000 horsepower from the factory with internal combustion engines, and they're a blast to drive, right? But they get horrible gas mileage. Guess what Chrysler's replacing them with? It's not electric. They developed a smaller turbocharged engine, a slant six turbocharged engine that gets better gas mileage that still produces 600 to 800 horsepower. Well, I'm right? glad you knew that because I have no idea. They just had to get a little bit better. And I think that's the impact is that electric vehicles are going to make the internal combustion in your manufacturer get a little bit better. And there's some companies out there like Toyota that basically said, I don't believe this electric vehicle stuff. I think it's a fad. We're not doing it. And so far, it looks like they've made the right decision. So I'm not worried about electric vehicles. And the other thing is, even if we move to a big percentage of electric vehicles, and I think somewhere in the future that will happen, but I think it's 100 years out, the electric vehicle itself is still manufactured from hydrocarbons. So it's just another market for us. Here in Europe, for the last 20 years, every year, we use less and less hydrocarbons for fuels because we get more efficient. Our vehicles get more efficient. Our light bulbs get more efficient. Houses get more insulated, get more efficient. But we still use hydrocarbons to make stuff. And I think that will be maybe the long, long-term, 100-year impact is just electric vehicles will have still need hydrocarbons to be manufactured. So I'm not worried one bit, Jacqueline. Okay. Rudolph Huber. Hi, Mark. When you talked about RNG today, you made it appear as if it's the methane that smells funny when one passes the waste dump. But methane gas is odorless. It's the organic stuff that wafts off together with the gas that gives you the tasty smells. That's so <laughs> gross. If methane smelled bad, we would not have to add odorants to city gas distribution grids to detect leaks by smell. Rudolph, who've written in before, you are 100% right. I was wrong about that. I was just rattled off too fast. I actually know that methane has no smell. It's a lot of the sulfur organic compounds in that decomposition that smells. You think stuff like hydrogen sulfide. So yes, methane has no odor. Thank you, Rudolph, for correcting me sincerely so the audience knows. And he's also right in that most municipalities have to put something that smells really bad to natural gas. Here in the U.S., it's something that smells like rotten eggs mm -hmm. so that you can smell if there's a leak. And if they didn't do that, you wouldn't smell if there's a leak and more people I've, I've had to hurt. call in. That's happened a couple times, actually. Okay, so Stephen O'Reilly, Portfolio Manager for Technique Energies, writes in, Mark, I remember a long time ago you mentioned something about getting your son's middle school textbook changed to show the facts about peak oil. My daughter's science textbook blatantly blames the fossil fuel energy for climate change. What can I do to have this change? And is it even worth my time to try? Paige, I would appreciate your chiming in as well. Love the show, guys. Please keep up what you're doing. So this is when my son was in middle school. And this was his eighth grade biology book. 
And in the biology book, they stated as a fact that we would hit peak oil, which was a theory invented by a guy named Hubbard from Shell in the 50s, based on the information he had at that time. And based on the information he had at that time, they extrapolate at some point, world's oil production would peak. And they actually thought that would happen in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And then after that, it would decline and we would run out of oil, would just disappear. And he was wrong. Not on purpose. You just, not bad, but just the technology yet, right? Yep. When I saw that in my son's textbook, it bothered me. And I went and talked to his teacher who actually didn't want to agree with me because she was brought up with peak oil as well, right? right. Something was really happening. We we're running oil. We have to switch to something else. Like oil, blah, blah, blah. And I spent literally a week with her over a couple one-hour sessions on a Zoom call showing her what I was talking about, that hydrocarbons are still being made, that there, no company goes and searches for all the reserves in the world because it doesn't make sense. They just search for reserves they need for the next couple of years. And eventually, she saw that I was right, and then it bothered her that she was teaching something that was wrong. So then she helped me go through the process inside the school board. Every step of the way, Stephen, I got fought I got pushed back on and fought with saying that I was just a pro oil and gas guy because I work in the industry and I didn't understand science. And so I had to repeat myself over and over and over again. And eventually it got to the top of the school board. There was actually a hearing and I had to convince the board members, which I did. And then they turned around and they went to the publisher of the book and said, if you keep wanting to do business with our school board, if you keep wanting us to buy the books, you have to change this, which the book publisher did. Funny that you're writing this in now, just in the last week or two, in the state of Texas, we're having something happen kind of similar, where the state itself is pushing back on textbooks that are talking about the oil and gas industry is the reason we're having catastrophic climate change. And the state of Texas is pushing back against the book publishers saying, if you want to sell these books in the state of Texas, you need to change this because that is not a fact. It's a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So is it worth your time? Honestly, it depends on why you're doing it. See, I spent a lot of time and a lot of money. I probably invested $10,000 of my own money in a year and a half, or maybe even closer to two years to get this change. And it did. And I do feel better that these young kids now here in my local area are being taught the truth about peak oil. But unfortunately, Stephen, it's probably less than 0.01% of our school kids' population in the U.S. I don't have time or money or inclination to go to every school board in the country and have that change. Right. So when you think about it that way, it's probably not worth it. I did feel better after doing it. So what we're doing now, Stephen, and everybody's heard me talk about our children's podcast, which I'm going to quit calling children's podcast. It sounds creepy. It's now Blue Energy Nation podcast. That's our young adults podcast, is we're going to host a new show, a new podcast, hosted by a pair of ninth graders, and they're going to learn the truth about energy literacy. No politics, no opinions, just facts. And they're in the process of them learning the truth about energy literacy. I'm hoping that their peers were, which would be other young people. So I'm hoping outside of the school tech books to educate here in the U.S. in the beginning, hopefully the whole world's young people about the reality of energy. And I think that's probably a better way to do it at scale. Whether it's worth it or not, it's, like I said, decent amount of money, a lot of time. I did feel better after doing it. But if I had to do it again, I think maybe I'd take the same efforts and put it back in this podcast I just mentioned. Yeah, probably so. All right. Micah Ellis writes in, hello, Mark, love the podcast. I've been listening for years and I have suggested it to a ton of colleagues and employees as a great way to stay informed on industry news. Congrats on the two million listeners. Just subscribe to the Sunday update. Looking forward to getting those. I didn't see a link to past editions. Are they available? Thank you and keep up the great work. Unfortunately, Micah, no. They're out there in cyberland. Yeah, but they're not available. 
there's no easy way for me to put them all together in one place. However, strangely enough, and we talked about this earlier about the recipes that are in there, I've had quite a few people ask us where we put together a cookbook based upon the recipes in the Sunday update. So if for some reason, Micah, that's really what you want to know is those other recipes. In the works, maybe a cookbook coming from OGGN, which is just bizarre, but if enough people want it and we can do it, we're going to do it. Sweet. Okay, so Cold Donner, I have some old passed down family oil stripper wells located in South Central Oklahoma. These wells produce very little BPD, but are feasible to operate. My question about these and others in the area is, do you see the future producers wanting to come back and rework or open up these old stripper vertical wells and look for new zones? Or will newer technology make it more profitable to come back into these old wells and find new ways to produce more compared to drilling new oil wells? So, Cole, it's absolutely the second part. At some point, depending on price, you're going to see companies, actually, you're probably going to see companies that specialize in this. They're going to come back and they're going to pick up these stripper wells. They'll work in a share agreement with you. And what they're going to do is they're going to use new technology, which may include some workover, to actually start producing more barrels than the three or four barrels you get in per day. Folks, you don't know what a stripper well is. It has nothing to do with somebody taking their clothes off. It's what you call an old well that it's end of its life and is barely producing just a couple barrels per day, and they're not economically viable. But there's all kinds of so much cool technology out there that can take a three-barrel-per-day well, and without much money or investment time, turn that three-barrel-per-day into a hundred-barrel-per-day well. So, yes, that's what's coming. If you own these, the only bit of advice I'd give you is when this first round of people come to you and they want to basically lease these wells from you, Make sure that you negotiate a short-term lease. I think the first round of companies coming out, you're going to get lowballed. But if you don't take the offer, you're going to get nothing. But I think within a couple of years of this growing, if you have a short-term lease, that the next lease you sign, say two or three years later, probably be four or five times higher than what you signed that first lease. But that only works if you don't sign like a 10-year lease. Right. Okay. This is from Anonymous. Mark, I found oil and gas this week in August, and I have since listen to every episode available on Spotify dating back to 2016. Jeez. Wow. Wow. On the first Friday Q&A for, that was October, somebody reached out about HVAC experience and can apply to oil and gas. I wanted to point out that at a gas plants, refineries, gas compression hubs, etc., use fan coolers, chillers to regulate temperature of gases they're processing. I actually know of a company in Texas that designed such systems specifically for oil and gas customers. I thought the gentleman who asked about HVAC experience may benefit from this information. You and Paige keep up the great work. Thanks. I love this. I love our listeners helping our other listeners. Right. I remember this guy writing in thinking he couldn't get a job because all he had was HVAC experience. I remember right. him yeah. writing in. So hopefully that listener is listening to this and just picked up the fact that there's companies that actually work with chillers and coolers to help regulate those gas temperatures. So if you're an HVAC person and you think here's another avenue for you to explore. I did get this person's name. In fact, I'm not even sure how this came in, but first guy with HVAC experience, if you need me to connect you to this person, let me know and I'll dig around, see if I can figure out who this is and get their contact information for you. All right. Final question is from Nancy Richard. Smart Infrastructure Manager at Siemens, I keep hearing that the supply of fossil fuels will run out and also that the world is moving away from fossil fuels, so the demand is lessening. Seeing that you've built such an enormous audience in the fossil fuel space, what are your plans when the fossil fuel industry finally disappears? Love the show, by the way. I'm not in the industry, but you two do an amazing job of educating while making it fun to listen to. I get this question a lot from people even in the industry. 
Well, number one, Nancy, what a compliment. I really am not going to make fun of you. You're being open and honest, and I'm saying you're naive in the psychological sense of the word. I know you're not a naive person working for smart infrastructure. You keep hearing about fossil fuels going to run out and the world's moving away from fossil fuel. This industry will disappear. is not true. And it will never be true for a variety of reasons. I don't know if you feel like going back and listen to old episodes because I've said this a million times, but hydrocarbons are what make modern life possible. So at Siemens and your smart infrastructure, think about what y'all do. Y'all do edge computing. You have a lot of sensors that you wire. You do a lot of IoT stuff. All of that would be impossible with hydrocarbons. The processors, the insulation on the wires connecting the processors to the memory, the enclosures, the seals, the paint, the adhesives. All of that comes from hydrocarbons. So even what you do would be impossible hydrocarbons. So it's never going to end. Our energy mix has always changed. In the beginning of humankind, 60, 80,000 years ago, we used biofuel, right? We burned wood to heat our food and to heat our homes. That wasn't really that good for the environment. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the world still burn wood and cattle dung, which Yum. Leads to a lot of deaths, actually, from the particulates. I bet. As we went through time, we learned that we could take whale oil and heat our homes and light our homes and run our industry. That wasn't real smart, killing whales to make sure we had energy. And then we tapped into kerosene and then later gasoline, hydrocarbons. And we figured out how to split the atom and we eventually figured out how to fuse the atom. So our energy mix has changed. Wind and solar has been part of our mix for an extremely long time. I mean, if you think about our cowboy ancestors who dried clothes on a clothesline, that's using wind energy. If you think about the Dutch using windmills, not only to grind grain, but to pump water to keep their homeland from flooding, that's using wind energy. Hydrocarbons will never disappear. The percentage of hydrocarbons versus wind versus solar versus nuclear versus geothermal will change and will always change. But I'm not worried at all. As far as our plans, we're growing and we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to educate the world and what's going on in our industry. Even what we're doing is changing. If you pay attention to what happens in the next year or so, you're going to see OGGN have more lifestyle type content than actual technical content because that's where our audiences are going. You can see us appeal to more younger people. So we're not going anywhere. The oil and gas industry is not going anywhere. In fact, it's only going to grow, but it's going to change. And Nancy, sincerely, I really appreciate you reaching out and somebody that doesn't understand our industry, but listens to our show that just tells me that what Paige and I do has to be pretty decent. Yep. We're decent people, (laughs) y'all. You know what else is decent? This week in petroleum history. This week in petroleum history. So guess what happened, Paige, in November 20th, 1866? Improved well torpedo was patented. So correct me if I'm wrong, but those two words probably should not go together. Torpedo and well. Right. This literally is an artillery round. This literally is a, a torpedo. And it was invented to fracture the rock for, guess what? Water. Mm-hmm. So, and eventually it moved over to the oil and gas industry. This is Colonel Edward A.L. Robertson of New York City patented the improvements to his Roberts Torpedo. He was a Civil War U.S. Army veteran and had received a bunch of patents for his exploding torpedo in artesian wells. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That sort of sounds like little kid fun, to be able to yeah. drop around down the <laughs> hole somewhere and watch it explode. <laughs> guess what else? What's our favorite hotel chain? Yours is Hilton. Mine is Hilton. Okay, I can't say ours, mine. So it is Hilton. I love you to death. Favorite hotel chain. I always try to stay there. So November 20th, 1930, oil boom helps Hilton expand in Texas. After buying his first hotel in the booming oil town of Cisco, Texas, Conrad Hilton opened a high rise in El Paso. After witnessing roughnecks from the oil field waiting for rooms, his first hotel, the Mobility, offered 40 rooms for 
eight-hour shifts to coincide with the worker shifts. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that crazy? Did they had room service back then? I doubt that. Anyway, so thanks to the booming oil business, Hilton was able to firmly establish the Texas hotel business. His El Paso Hilton, now the Plaza Hotel. Oh, I know where that is in El Paso, the Plaza. I didn't realize that. Click. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> I remember this, November 20th, 1980. Oh, this, yeah. Texaco was a drilling platform, was drilling in Lake Pilfner in Louisiana. I remember this happened, and they punctured a salt dome. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because I think people died. Yeah. So the miners in the salt dome, which were 1,500 feet below this link. Nobody got hurt. Nobody got hurt. Okay. So all the miners got out, but literally Texaco drained this lake in a matter of, I think, an hour. They lost their drill rig. Everything got sucked down this hole when they punched a hole in the salt dome. And I remember this. Literally, the lake just completely disappeared. But anyway, Texaco ended up paying, I think, $32 million to the salt company. They ruined their salt business and their salt dome. Luckily, nobody got hurt. They just comment. Let's see. Nobody cares about corporation. Oh, you don't remember this because I don't think you were born yet. November 21st, 1980. Oh, let's tell everybody my age, huh? <laughs> Millions watched Dallas episode, Who Shot JR? Oh. I remember this. this was a <laughs> huge marketing push by Dallas, the show Dallas. And the cliffhanger episodes, Who Shot JR? I think 83 million people and 350 million people worldwide watched this. He was a greedy oil tycoon, and people hated him. That's why they loved to watch to see who killed him, which I don't want to give it away if you haven't watched it yet, but he really didn't die. Um, you just gave it away. <laughs> Nobody's going back I know, but this. still, you're just like, no, it's fine. November 22nd, 1878, Tidewater Pipeline Company established. We know that company now as Tidewater Marine. This is in Pennsylvania. First pipeline to cross from Philadelphia into Williamsport. This achievement is considered by most experts as the first true oil pipeline in America, if not the world. Let's see. Anything else? Nope. Doesn't. Well, maybe. Oh, let's close with this. November 23rd, 1951. Public risk of the risk of drilling wells too deep. Highlighted a theatrical release of Superman's first feature length movie. Remember, this is 1951. Superman and the Mold Men. This is a 1951 plot unfolded. In the fictional town where after drilling a very deep oil well, they hit clean air a depth of 32,000 feet. That was the center of the earth. And they had a bunch of mole men and Superman had to come in and save the world's population. So please, oil men out there, do not drill to the center of the earth so we have to call Superman to save the rest of the population. No, you just get to China. You get to China. No, you have to sit to the center of the earth first. <laughs> or the middle of the earth as right. the flat earthers call it because they think it's concave. Oh, that's right. All right. That was the end of Week in Petroleum History. If you want to sign up for any of our two newsletters, we mentioned that. The links are in the show notes for both of them. We have our events newsletter, also our Sunday update, which people are raving about. Weekly rig count page. Where are we? The United States is up to at 618. Canada is down three at 196. Internationally, we're up 22 at 962. Yep. Go to LinkedIn. Just sign up for our company page. Enough with that. Oh, by the way, if you've noticed, oilandgasthisweek.com has disappeared as have all of our individual websites. As part of OGG and growing and streamlining, we had to change the way our RSS feeds, which you don't need to worry about that, but basically the way that your mobile device is connected to our podcast. Oh, it's really going to piss off that old guy that was like, where are my news articles? <laughs> the only place now for you to ask questions is at OGGN.com. Apologies for that, but it's just part of our growth. Our technology stack had to change and our COO laid down the law and said, we're doing this. And even though it's Paige and I's company, we have to listen to him as well. Well, he's kind of the boss. He's kind of the boss. Uh, if you like myself or anybody else other than our boss to come to your event, do a live podcast, do a keynote, let me know. Paige, for the first time ever, 
you and I have been invited to do live podcasts in an event in 2025. Oh, wow. That's that's how far people are reaching out to get us booked for stuff. So if you want us booked for 2024. Did we actually commit to that? Yeah. Okay. It's with our buddy, Shauna. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yay, Shauna. Yeah. Because they only do that event every two years. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Okay. So anyway, if you want myself or any of my experts to come out and speak, keynote, live podcast, whatever, we're filling up for 2024. Just reach out to me. I'm happy to share the details with that. Like I mentioned, first Friday Q&A. Now the only place to go is actually OGGN.com. We do also take questions, as you can tell, from all of our social, just not Facebook people. I check our company's Facebook messenger about once a month. I have the notifications turned off. I don't see anything that comes in. So if you want to ask a question, LinkedIn X, which formerly Twitter is the second best way other than by doing it on the website. Ready to get out of here? Yep. Remember folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.